React is a set of open source tools for building user interfaces. React was open sourced by Facebook and includes libraries for creating user interfaces on the web with React.js and on mobile devices, React Native. React was released during a time when there was not a dominant front-end JavaScript library. Backbone, Angular, and other JavaScript frameworks were all popular, but there was not any consolidation across the front-end web development community. Before React came out, front-end developers were fractured into different communities for the different JavaScript frameworks. As Facebook open-sourced React, web developers began to gravitate towards the framework for its one-way data flow and its unconventional style of putting JavaScript and HTML together in a format called JSX. As React has grown in popularity, the React ecosystem has developed network effects. In many cases, the easiest way to build a web application front-end today is to compose together open-source React components. After seeing the initial traction, Facebook invested heavily into React, creating entire teams within the company whose goal was to improve React. Dan Abramov works on the React team at Facebook and joins the show to talk about how the React project is managed and his vision for the project. The Find Collabs Open has started. This is our second Find Collabs hackathon, and we're giving away $2,500 in prizes. The prizes will be awarded in categories such as music, visual art, React.js, Flutter, podcasting, data visualization, cryptocurrencies, game design. We are having a number of different prizes being given away, and it's going to be a lot of fun. So if you're interested in contributing to a project or starting your own project, go to findcollabs.com open. Find Collabs is a place for collaboration on open source and other kinds of projects, and it's a company that I started. So I'm hoping to get your feedback on it, and I hope you enjoy the Find Collabs Open. Dan Abramov, you are the co-author of Redux. You're a member of the Facebook React team. Welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Hi. Your path to working at Facebook full-time was through the React community. Why did you start working with React? So I was basically, uh, I, I needed to write an app in JavaScript. So we were, before that, uh, I was working in a small startup at the time, and we were we were working on an iPad app, but then right in the middle, we decided to do a web version instead. And so we needed to make this pretty complex single-page app. And I don't think either of us even, like the, there were three or, or four people on the team at the time, and I don't think either of us knew how to do it. And I think we started with Backbone, but we bumped into its limitations. It was pretty difficult to to create dynamic, like highly dan- dynamic user interface. And one colleague showed React to me, and at first I kind of dismissed it, but then he was like, no, like you should really try it, it's good. And I implemented a, it so happened <laughs> that at the time I was implementing a like button. So like literally the button that you can click, it says you and like other friends uh, liked uh, this uh, this post. And so I tried to react on this small like button and and like 
I was able to express all the UI states that I wanted in a single evening. And I just checked in React into our app. And then gradually, we, we ended up gradually rewriting the whole app in React as, alongside, like as we were working on new features, we managed to ship new features and uh, rewrite. Uh, like React gave us so much productivity that we could both rewrite things in React and also ship new features at the same time. And uh, at the time, like it was, it was still a pretty early time for React. I think we adopted it in like 2014, so that was a year after its open source release. And a lot of the ecosystem was still missing at the time. So there wasn't even React Router back then. There, w- there was another library called React Router Component, uh, I think, which didn't end up being popular. But it was a pretty early time. And so I, I kind of like for a lot of problems, I just had to uh, figure out my own solutions. Like how, how do you set the document title? How do you like sync React with Backbone and all, all this kind of stuff? And so I ended up creating some like libraries just to kind of solve our own problems as they came up. And then that was at the same time when React ecosystem was uh, was exploding. And I think a lot of people noticed those things. And that's how I uh, became somewhat visible in the React ecosystem. You joined Facebook in 2015 to work on React. Mm-hmm. What was the structure of the React team at the time when you joined? You mean like who exactly worked there? I guess the management structure, because this is an open source project and you're joining to work on an open source project full time. So did you report to people or what was the the structure of the team? Right. So as far as I remember, Tom Aquino was managing the team at the time. And uh, so I reported, just like everybody on the React team, I reported to Tom Aquino and since so Tom Aquino is still at Facebook, he's uh, he's managing the React org, which includes the React team and a few other teams. But yeah, uh, and now uh, we, we've went through a few manager changes. So for some time, Christopher Shadow managed the team, then Sophie Alpert managed the team, and now Yuzi uh, Zhang is managing the team. So it's been a few different people over the time, but they reported to Tom. What have you learned about having a open source product team managed successfully? That's a pretty broad question. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's like uh, I think there's a lot of stuff that I, I learned. I think Facebook is like, like I think Facebook's approach to open source is different from some other companies, and it has both upsides and downsides. But I think one of the uh, guiding principles for like what we do and what I think why React managed to be successful is that we React is not a vanity project, right? And it's not Facebook is not a developer platform, at least in the front end space. So it doesn't actually we don't have uh, aside from hiring, I guess, and like recruiting, we don't actually have strong incentives for like to encourage other people to use React. And so React is primarily driven by by the needs of, of the products that we develop. And because we develop such a wide range of products, it's like when you think of Facebook, you probably think of, uh, I don't know, like the newsfeed. But React actually didn't come out of that. React came out of the ads. Uh, so like Jordan was walking on, I think, ads creation. 
and this is one of the most complicated front apps, uh, front end apps that I've ever seen. So like it's it's many forms connected to each other with many steps, with uh, like validation and all these uh, like targeting previews and drop downs and maps and like any kind of component you can probably find it there. And so Jordan was trying to simplify that code, and that's uh, that's how React came to be. And it gradually spread its presence over like different parts of the UI, and it's been used more and more in the in the main consumer consumer side apps. I think just being driven by the product needs and having a different set of products helps ensure that by the time that we release an API or make a change to React, it is actually like it can answer a broad range of use cases. And so they tend to map to uh, to what people externally want as well. So it, it is like it, it goes through a lot of dark footing, also including because Facebook itself runs on Facebook. So like all the work communication uh, happens through Workplace and Workplace Messenger, which are pretty much Facebook, but like branded for companies. So if we introduce a bug in React, uh, like our own chat is probably going to break. So we'll probably notice that. So I think that also, that's also why React is relatively stable. And I think that uh, a lot of people using React appreciate that. How is the React team managed today? If you don't have KPIs and other hard metrics, I mean, surely uh, if somebody pushes a bug and, uh, and it starts to impact Facebook for work, yeah, that's a problem. But uh, are are there any are there any management structures that you know somebody who is listening to this and trying to build an open source team might be able to take away? So I think React team is pretty unusual in that sense, uh, even compared to most Facebook teams, because usually when you build a uh, like when you build a product or some piece of infrastructure that's well understood. So like maybe uh, some kind of new caching layer or like uh, some new network thing or some database thing, you usually have a like a, a well-defined criteria for success, right? So like you can say, like maybe we increased uh, the number of posts by like 15% because the feed loads faster or something like this. So there, there's usually some kind of metrics that you can track over time and use that as a uh, success criteria. But with React team, I think we have passed the stage of like early, like easy improvements, easy wins. And a lot of what we're currently working on is uh, our kind of longer term projects that involve a lot of research. In many cases, the, the results, they're not necessarily easy to quantify. Or even it's not easy to, like a lot of React apps do some kind of data fetching, right? So like you want to fetch something from the network, you want to store it, like maybe in component state, you want to show some kind of loading indicator while you do that. It's like, I don't know, maybe like 50% of the application code in some apps can be just like data fetching and, and management logic. And it's not something that, uh, like, you can already do that, right? It already works in React. You, you, we could say that this is a solved problem. But then if you look at this problem, like, more holistically, you can notice that there's a bunch of boilerplate code. There's a suboptimal user experience where you might see a 
cascade of spinners flashing everywhere uh, as the data loads. And because you express everything as components, you can see this like fragmentation in, in how the changes are presented to the user. And so if we could handle this on the library level, we could have a better user experience and we could have a better developer experience. And it doesn't mean necessarily that it's impossible to do today. Like you could hack around those things in like in product code and people do. So like a lot of code is just hacking around things. But what we try to do with React is we try to figure out the idiomatic solution so that the, the one that doesn't need to change later, the one that has like the best trade-offs for this use case. And then once we solve a certain problem, it, we, we want it to remain solved. And I think that makes it challenging to say, uh, like coming back to your question about the uh, how do you measure success and how do you how do you manage that? I think that makes managing it very challenging because in many cases it's it's like managing a research project. You don't really know if something's going to work out or not, and the best you can do is to create an environment where people can actually do that kind of research where they don't feel rushed or they don't feel that, you know, like this research is useless, but also find a way to to not let them get, you know, to, to, to not let them go into a completely different direction from what the product needs. So like you, you need to keep them close to the product people and keep the conversation flowing both ways and make sure that they see real scenarios and that they try their solutions in real products and get feedback from that. And of course, uh, you also need to manage expectations. Like the product side might depend on some API that is, it's not clear if that API is gonna work out and you need to ensure that there is understanding on both sides on what is in uh, in each stage. So I think it it's a mix of many things, but it's it's finding mostly in finding the right balance between the research, uh, the duck footing, and actually implementing things and shipping them. You're describing a distinct environment because, to some degree, it is like this research project, this long-term research project, where you need to have some determinism around where the project is going, uh, what you want React to look like in five years or ten years. But to another extent, it's like a startup where you have customers that are already using your product. There are thousands of applications that are using React today, and many of the developers who are using React are interfacing with the core team through open source uh, platforms like GitHub. So how do you, you personally, or I guess the team as well, What's the balance between interacting with the open source community and thinking longer term, talking internally with your own team? I think you kind of have to do both at the same time. And it's just like work on different threads. I think you need to have some kind of a vision. We There is a person, uh, Sebastian, Sebastian Mark Bogge on our team who's who has all these ideas about longer term projects that we could do like for the next five years. So I think we're very lucky to have him. So that's, I think, a lot of his ideas turned, like some of them didn't work out, but a lot of them turned into uh, like actual, actual things that we shipped. So like the React 16 rewrite, which we shipped, I think, a year ago, maybe two years ago by now. 
was motivated by some of the research that he did and that Jordan previously did. So I guess Jordan, the creator of React, is the first visionary for React. And I think it's important to have a person like this who has a long-term vision, but then you also need to uh, like talk to the product people and talk to the open source community. So I think talking to the open source community is something I try to do. It's not like technically my like job description. I'm just engineer working on React, but it's uh, it also serves as as input, and it I guess it helps find the problems with the API and the edge cases sometimes earlier than we find in our own products. It's a really good source of feedback. So can you can you repeat the question again? Well, it, you you did basically answer it. I mean, I I was. I was hinting at the fact that there's a combination of long-term research that you have to do, but also short-term analysis of your current, uh, quote-unquote, customer base, or I guess user base, people who are using React components. Right. It just strikes me as, as like there's a balance that you have to you have to hit, and, and it's probably not straightforward, but you know probably also hard to describe, you know, because it's it is like you said, you're doing these two different things on separate threads. Yeah, I think it like the threads analogy is a really useful one, and you can think about it. Uh, what we we don't really talk about React as like as a single entity as much. We usually talk in terms of projects. It's like uh, we give them funny code names. Uh, they all start with uh, the F letter. So there was the Fiber rewrite. There's a React Fire project. Uh, there's React Fabric. And the code names represent the fact that we don't always know what those projects actually mean because they're we're kind of still researching them. And uh, like usually there is some kind of idea that we want to explore. But then eventually we get into a phase where we're confident uh, that like the, the design is solid, uh, that we can try to implement it, dog food it, try it, and then we see, okay, it seems like this works. It seems like this is a good idea, and we can get closer to shipping it. And that's when we kind of drop the code name and it just becomes React again, or it becomes like some specific feature or a specific release like React 16. But uh, as the project gets through, like each project goes gets through those stages where at first you just have a hunch, uh, like maybe this is a good idea, it's worth trying, and it's uh, it's when you explore the designs. But then when you actually start working on it, um, what we try to do is we try to focus on a single client first. So this client uh, can be, like usually it's somebody internally because we don't want to release an experimental API and turn the community on something that is not actually good. So we try to find some volunteers, like some teams that are willing to try any unstable API, like at Facebook. Uh, and we, uh, at first, we always pick just one team. So even if like 10 teams want to use it, we just pick one. And so we work with them to ensure that their use case is handled well, that this API actually works, that it's fast, and that, that they feel happy with it. And so after we've worked it out with one team, this is when we pick like the next team and we make sure that like maybe they need uh, a different option. Maybe uh, their use case uncovers a flaw in the API that like the whole idea might get scrapped uh, because of that. Or maybe we find a way uh, around those and like make a better API. And so we gradually take on more clients until we say, okay, like let's just 
let's just try to use it at Facebook. And so any team at Facebook can start using it and uh, they give us feedback. And this is the point where like, if it goes well for a month or two, then we feel confident. Yeah, like this can be a stable API in the open source. And so we release an alpha or a beta in the open source, start writing documentation, and we get another round of feedback, which might also like like lead to some changes in the API in the in the idea. And so each project goes through the stages, and it gets more and more concrete. But it's important that we start by focusing on like on a small uh, small user base and try to make that user base happy, and then gradually expand. You have said that in the early days of joining Facebook, you didn't have a work-life balance. And it sounded like that was because you were enjoying your work so much. Can you tell me about finding work-life balance? I don't actually remember the the time I was referring to. I mean, I'm. I think I'm. I'm still struggling with work-life balance sometimes, uh, which is mostly self-imposed. It's not even the work itself that eats into that as much as just like answering people's questions on Twitter, and like others, uh, or like GitHub or social media. It is pretty difficult for me to completely tune out of that. But I, I do try to not look at twitter in the evenings although it's again like i'm not doing particular like you caught me in a moment where i'm not doing that particularly well but it can like especially i think as i get a bit older i'm i'm 20 i think i'm 26 maybe yeah so i i think i I used to be able to like argue in the evening easily, but now I'm like, <laughs> if I, I don't know, somebody is like really negative and it's like even 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. and like I try to, I try to reply in a calm way, but sometimes it still gets to you and then like I have a bad night's sleep and it's, it's just not worth it. So I'm, I'm trying to cut down on my uh, social media usage as much as possible. In terms of work, I don't really think it's a problem now. So, like, I I don't really, I don't take my work laptop at home. So, like, I couldn't fix anything even if I wanted to. I'll admit that I do read the conversations in, like, in the workplace chat. And it's it's challenging because my teammates are mostly in, in America where, well, I'm in the UK. So, just as I'm about to start, uh, like... I don't know, to like watch Netflix or do something in the evening, there is an interesting conversation. And sometimes it's it's hard to resist uh, uh, to, and like not jump into that. But also I've been trying to do that less in, in the past few months. What are the biggest problems with how popular open source repositories get managed today? You mean like in terms of what are like our biggest pro like what do we do badly view, or what, from, what? From, the, from the point of view of the company, from the point of view of the developers who are consuming that open source repository, from the point of view of the overall moderation and the social interactions that take place on these open source repositories, what are the problems with the ecosystem? I guess I'm not really qualified to uh, like to speak as to you know, what the uh, what the issues for the company are, or even what the issues for the users are, because I I haven't really, uh, I haven't been a consumer of a large open source project for a long time. 
So I don't really remember what it was like. I think that things that I think that makes it challenging for us. So I'll, I'll just like I'll just be selfish. I'll tell you uh, what it, what is hard for for me. I think the thing that becomes challenging is we like every single thing that we do is heavily scrutinized, which is like fine. That's uh, it's a popular project. Uh, and like we welcome the feedback uh, and stuff like this, but sometimes it just gets overwhelming. Like imagine that, I don't know, you were working on an app and every single commit would be like commented on by like thousands of people. It's just a bit weird. And I, I wouldn't say that this is exactly what happens. Like we don't get a thousand comments on every commit, but sometimes it means that it's it can be difficult to manage the communication and to own your own narrative. So sometimes we like we want to make a change. Like we don't do big changes in React uh, without a good migration path, right? Because like we have uh, like by now I think probably like a hundred thousand components at Facebook React components, maybe a bit less, like maybe I don't know eighty, ninety thousand, especially if you combine uh, both the web and React Native repositories. And it's uh, like we usually have some kind of migration path because we are just a team of like 10 people basically uh, against all those thousands of components. And we can't like leave somebody behind. We don't have multiple repositories where everybody like picks their own React version. No, there is a single React version that is basically React Master from GitHub. And uh, that we sync every two weeks, and so everybody's on the same version of React. If we, if we make a change in React, it's on us to make sure that those thousands of components actually keep working with the, with this new version. So we take the upgrade paths uh, very seriously, but then it can be difficult to communicate that to the uh, to like somebody who just adopted React. They're not like they don't know us, and they. They, they don't really have a good reason for, to trust us. And like, that's completely understandable. How do they know that we're not going to just like move their cheese? And so what is difficult is we need to make sure that our messaging is always very clear about what guarantees we provide, what like APIs are stable, what APIs are unstable, what are uh, like how we're moving forward without leaving uh, anyone behind. And stuff like this. And some uh, sometimes if we fail to communicate that clearly, then somebody else will do that for us. Because it's a, it's a very visible project. So like if we if we release a feature and we we may even like document it, but if we don't explain it like on Twitter or in a blog post or probably like in both combined, then somebody else will explain it for us. And sometimes they might misunderstand either the feature itself or the intention or the upgrade path, uh, and so, and once somebody does it, then the misconception spread. And because React is such a visible project, like literally, you can push a release, and the next day you will see like twenty medium articles explaining what it is and, and why it matters. And so, keeping all the like keeping track of everything that like people talk about, and helping like manage uh, like helping explain our story and why we're working on these things and what those things really are is pretty difficult. There are these gigantic companies that do tons of work in the open on GitHub. You have Facebook, you have Microsoft, you have Netflix. 
How did the open source work styles vary between these different companies? Mm, I don't really feel qualified to answer that because I, again, like I'm not consuming any big projects from like anyone else. I think the work styles differ a lot even inside of Facebook, uh, like different uh, teams that open source stuff usually have different priorities. So maybe something internally is on fire and they literally need to spend half a year like fixing those uh, internal cases, which might not matter as much the open source community because they just haven't uh, bumped into those limitations yet. For example, that happened with Flow where the external perception is that uh, like sometimes Flow doesn't pay enough attention to the needs of the open source community. And they started to turn that around with the uh, with the recent releases. But the reason is not because they don't care, but rather internally our the number of files using Flow is growing so much faster than the performance improvements they could make. So they were literally spent uh, like most of the year just making Flow scale to the Facebook code base size in a single repository. And so I think the like differences in uh, in which things are a priority for a team right now determine uh, the style of the communication and the the way project is governed and the way the the changes are made. So like some projects start some projects are primarily uh, operated from GitHub and then get synced into Facebook internally. Uh, so that's that's how React works. We work on GitHub first, but some other projects like React Native are they are tied into our internal like testing infrastructure and it would be pretty difficult or maybe even not make as much sense to move it to github first model because you don't want to lend something that uh passes the like uh, the ci tests but breaks a lot of facebook products uh so it's it's a balance Uh, and react native has a much larger surface area than react so like it has many more components and so it's it's a bit it's it's more difficult to make it github first but they're also like working on reducing the surface area and extracting packages into uh into repositories managed by uh different community members so there is the ongoing lean core effort that tries to do that so I think like the surface area of the project can really determine the way it is run. And then there's a, also the governance. So like there are very different governance structures. In some cases, there there is a small team that makes the decisions after like maybe there is an RFC process like we have in React where even when we want to make API changes, we first write up an RFC explaining like the motivation and then we get feedback and we might change the proposal. But the governance itself can differ. So in some cases, uh, it's a technical committee that is composed from different companies. In some cases, it's a single company. In some, like, the rules for joining a committee like this can also be different. And I think it, a lot depends on the project uh, maturity and also how much, uh, like, how much of it is in the research phase. So React is undergoing a re-architecture right now. What have you learned about refactoring large open source projects? So to give some context, we're I wouldn't say we're currently going through React Architecture. We actually finished that about a year ago. We are building on top of the new architecture and we are kind of taking advantage of those changes. But 
about a year ago, we basically rewrote React from scratch, at least the, the majority of React. There, there was some code that stayed the same, but the main engine, it was completely rewritten from scratch. And I think there is uh, there is this common wisdom. I think it uh, there is this article by Charles Polsky uh, from Journal and Software Blog about how rewrites are always a terrible idea and they never work. I think we challenged that wisdom a little bit, but it's challenging to pull it off. And I think the reasons our rewrite worked, there, there were a few different reasons. So one of them is we had a pretty clear idea about the things that we wanted to avoid. So we got some new constraints. In particular, we wanted to make rendering interruptible. So we wanted it to be possible that you start the React starts some work, uh, starts rendering a large component tree, and then there is maybe there is some kind of user event, and then React can pause that work, update in response to user event uh, that is like more important, and then rebase and continue working on the large update uh, that's like unrelated uh, to the user event. And so this was a pretty fundamental change in constraints uh, from the like from the old React, and it was very hard to retrofit this into existing code. So Sebastian came up with this uh, React Fiber project, which is a re-implementation of React around uh, like a different algorithm that enables this kind of concurrent rendering when there is there are multiple updates that are like being handled at the same time, potentially with different priorities. And the I think the reason at first it was very like it seemed like we just when we when he just started he started sending PRs that like the pull requests that add first tests and like the test looked like a component that just renders like a button and doesn't do anything else and like a counter and at the time it seemed like there is such a long way to go that we'll never get there. So it, it just seemed like an impossible project. But then Sophie Alpert started setting up some infrastructure and we set, we we realized that we have a lot of tests. Some of these tests were like unit tests where the unit is like a particular internal module. And some of those tests were more like integration tests from React's point of view. So not like integration where you load things in the browser, but like they, they were using public API. And we realized that we can only really carry over those tests to the like to the new implementation if they test the public API because all the tests for internal modules are, are now useless because we are gonna throw away those internal modules and write different ones. And so what we did was we had some effort to convert the remaining tests that used private APIs uh, to like rephrase those tests in terms of public API and just observable behavior to the user. And so we spent some time on that and the community really helped. So we had a GitHub issue with like checkboxes where different people would take a different file and rewrite the test. And so with that test coverage, what we ended up doing was we... We took all all our existing tests, so the majority of those were now written against the public API, and we ran the the test suite uh, against both implementations. So we didn't have like uh, we don't do branch development, so we did not have like a long running branch or anything. We had a parallel implementation checked into the same repository, 
uh, there was like a skeleton at first, and then it started growing meat. We ran both implementations against the same test suite. But of course, the new implementation would fail like uh, 80% of the tests. And so what we, uh, what Sophie did was she made a file that was a list of all passing tests in the new implementation, which was pretty short at first. And we made the continuous, like the CI, the continuous integration server, we made it fail if the list of currently passing tests with the new implementation is different from that file. And we also had a command that updated the file. And so the idea there was that you could pick any test from that file, make it pass with the new implementation by implementing the missing features, and then uh, rerun the script that would update the list of passing tests. And that would be part of your change. And so you could see uh, in each individual, like in each individual change, you could see, oh, these are the tests that it fixes. And so once you get that merged, that like when I work on the next fix, you know that it will not regress the old tests because now now those tests are not failing anymore. They are uh, they are not in the file, and so the CI would fail if you regressed on those. And then our manager Tom Aquino, so he uh, he made a page that had a graph of the number of passing tests with each commit. So we had a script that updates uh, updates that number. And so you could go to is I don't know if that website is still live, probably not, but you could go to isfiberreadyyet.com and it would have this graph uh, of like uh, all the all the tests, like how many tests are passing out of how many total we have. And it was gradually growing with every commit. And I think just like opening that page and seeing, oh, like uh, we we are one step closer has had a huge motivating impact on the team. And we just kept fixing those. And uh, but we also needed to make sure that the um, like the unit tests are still, uh, even though we have like thousands of them, there is still uh, just an approximation of real code. So the other thing we did early on was we set it up so that at Facebook, you could uh, opt into like a special flag that would serve you this uh, this new implementation instead of the old one. And at first, it was completely broken. Like if you enabled that flag for yourself, like none of the <laughs> none of the website would work. And I think the first big step was when somebody implemented uh, handling of CSS classes. So none of the events would work, but it would just set the correct CSS class names. For your components, and then suddenly you could see like all the markup jumping into shape, and actually like looking like a real thing. And I think that was also very motivating. And so we, uh, like, as soon as it was somewhat usable, we uh, opted in like our team into that feature flag, so we would all get this new version that is half broken, and we would constantly switch back and forth because like the messenger was not working or like the task tool. But eventually it got like pretty stable and we just switched to using the new implementation just for our team full time. And at some point we decided that, okay, like it's stable enough that we can enable it for people who participate in the internal Facebook React.js group. And so we enable it for 50% of them and started getting more bug reports. And eventually it got stable enough that we enabled it for 1% of real users. And again, that caused some bugs and we fixed them. 
And then we just shift it to 100% and switch it over to the new one. And that's when we need that it's ready to ship in the open source as well. All right, a few more high-level questions. Where do you see React in five years? It's very hard to say because the some of the biggest ideas are completely unforeseen. Like as an example, we recently released the first stable version of the Hooks API. That is a new component API that lets you uh, use state and other React features from function components without having to write a class. It solved a bunch of issues that we've been thinking about for the past five years, but Sebastian just came up with it like a few months ago. And <laughs> we like we couldn't predict that that would be the like we knew that we wanted to have some kind of functional API, but none of them really looked right. And I don't know if he didn't have that idea based on uh, some other ideas that he saw from Dominic and from some people in the community and kind of synthesized them, maybe this change wouldn't have happened. And I think for a lot of those really impactful ideas, you don't really you don't really see them in advance. They're, they just kind of sneak up on you when you try to solve other problems. But I, like in broad strokes, I think there's a few big missing parts in React. That's the, like that, the list of F code names that I referred to earlier. That's kind of our longer term projects. I think they capture that a little bit. So I'll just say about a few different directions. So like one of them is the data fetching. So the current solutions are not integrated with React itself, which makes sense if you think of React as a view library, but we think of it as a user interface library. And in a way, data fetching, or at least being able to wait for something to happen and then present that to the user is is, part, is a UI concern. Maybe like the exact mechanics are not, but uh, the way you reflect that in UI, it, it is a UI concern. Some features that we demoed in, uh, so there is a post called Beyond uh, Sneak Peek Beyond React 16 on the React blog that contains a presentation, a talk that I did at JSConf Iceland that goes into features like suspense that's related to data fetching and time slicing that's related to being able to uh, render work without blocking the browser. I think though, I hope that in five years, those things will definitely be stable. Actually, I hope they'll be stable this year, but we'll see. So that, that's part of the picture, just making data fetching much more natural and like easier to integrate with React components while not compromising and actually improving the user experience. And I think that that is part of a broader topic, which is, as I mentioned, we don't we don't just try to find a solution to a problem because like any problem has a lot of solutions, but we try to find some idiomatic solution that is like not a hack, but something that you can solve once and then it stays solve, solved. And I think for things like data fetching and doing updates without blocking the browser and figuring out the best trade-off between server and client-side rendering and perhaps some kind of hybrid solution with streaming so that you don't have that gap between when the page is just HTML and unresponsive and when the JavaScript loads. So finding some balance there that is that works great by default 
is a big motivation for the ongoing streaming server render, the new thing that Sebastian is working on. But even if, like, even those are not uh, are just scratching the surface of what React could do. So there are things like handling gestures, better providing better primitives uh, for handling gestures, uh, handling animations, uh, creating UIs that work great on all kinds of devices, including touch devices, tablets, uh, desktop, mobile, and uh, finding what's common. Bet- maybe some abstractions could be common bet- between React web and React Native, uh, what are those abstractions? I think there's like better abstractions for animations, of course, because animations are still kind of not very nice to work uh, with. For like for, From React, they're not, not very easy to work with. And finding some good solutions there would be nice. So anything that really relates to making better UIs by default, I think that's that's what we try to do with React. Okay, last question. You've spent some time reading classics like Code Complete, Joel on Software, you have watched Brett Victor talks, but you also spend plenty of time on the internet, and the internet is all about new things. How do you know when to respect your elders and when to ignore best practices? I try to listen to what Sebastian says. I think he has a very good he has a very good talent for for picking the right thing there, the right balance between those things. And the way he does it is interesting. I think he he's very good at reasoning from first principles. So what he does is uh, he might pick a certain best practice or a uh, like something that we've accepted, like either in in React itself or in another library or in UI development in general. And he goes back to the, like, he goes back further than I see most people go back. So he, he takes that solution and he's like, wait, why why is it why is it done this way? Why why do we do it this way? And he goes a step back, okay, like this is the problem it was supposed to solve. So that this is why the solution looks this way. But then he goes he goes further back and he's like, wait, what why is this even a problem? Like what are how do you uh, how did we arrive at that problem? And because he combines like some knowledge from both just like low level understanding of how you know how a computer works <laughs> like um both in terms of like cpu and graphics and memory and network and like how does a browser work and why does a browser work this way or like how does a native platform work or like how does a language work i think he just peels back at these layers and he sees that, okay, like this is the best practice because of a certain set of constraints. But what if those constraints were different? Or why why are the constraints structured this way? Or can we add a different constraint that would alter the path that we're taking? And I, I think that's uh, that's the kind of thinking that helps him arrive at these solutions that I don't see many other people uh, manage to arrive at. So I think that's my uh, that's my answer is you just peel peel back the layers behind those best practices and try to trace them back to the first principles and then maybe the path from the first principles will be different. Okay, well Dan, it's been really great talking to you. I appreciate you coming on Software Engineering Daily and talking so much about React and Facebook and your own personal philosophies. Thank you. It's been fun. Wow. 